With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Friday, June 25th, 2021, almost. If you're watching the live stream, it's actually June 24th, Thursday, and uh, we're back. It's another weekend, and that means that we are right in the thick of the schedule. Another race this weekend, which I think is the, the, the first in, what, 17 race weekends in a row or something. It's getting to the really exciting part of the season we've had some great races this uh, year so far hoping we're going to see more at uh, the red bull ring this weekend and the first of a double header which is kind of uh i suppose par for the course uh, nowadays but it's good i'm excited i'm happy i'm glad it's almost weekend and mark i don't know where your stamina is coming from because you just got off the the spaces chat on the on twitter now you're doing the podcast i'm hoping that maybe some of the people that were in uh, the spaces chat are now going to join us in the live stream if not hey but you know it's weird i came in you're like hey come in say hi before we do the show i was talking nobody could hear anything i was talking i you know i feel kind of rude but i'm going to put that down to a technical glitch but uh, how are you sir I'm doing fantastic. And it's funny because you'd made a comment months and months and months ago that the risk of doing a podcast about Formula One is there's going to be a moment where you start to realize your audience knows more about the subject matter than you do. I think that moment is far, far, far back in the rearview mirror. I think our audience has matured <laughs> far beyond the subject matter and the quality of product that we're delivering at this point. And that, uh, that's something that uh, hits me square in the face every time we do a Spaces chat. But yeah, it was fantastic. It was awesome. So thank you to everyone that joined once again. We had taken some of the feedback that we'd had before. So we'd done a few Spaces sessions so far, but they'd principally been kind of surprised. Like, I've got a couple of minutes. Let's stand to chat up, see who joins. But this one we had marketed we put out there on twitter let people know in advance and i think yeah. that's probably something we'll do in advance maybe what we'll do is start doing a thursday session immediately before the podcast so we can kind of build them back to back and have some consistency there i know everybody loves that the other thing that we're potentially talking about doing is there's been a lot of listeners that have asked to do a, a zoom chat so we might look at that i've got a zoom subscription so obviously we can share some uh, invites to that uh, so that's something we're obviously looking at doing, but big news on the personal front. And this simply reflects the fact that we're not yet at a stage where Formula One is handing us credential media passes, but my wife and I today put out the money, we keyed our credit card into the browser and we bought tickets to Yas Marina to the race at Abu Dhabi to conclude the season wow, in December. Cool. Now, more than ever, I am totally 100% invested in this championship going down <laughs> to the wire. I want the I want Max and Lewis to alternate race victories every single weekend because now that we've outlaid that cash, I want to see the title decider. And we were super, super lucky. And everyone's heard this before. But in 2016, we bought tickets mid-season, probably June, July, when we went to uh, Abu Dhabi last time for a Grand Prix. And we were lucky because the championship was actually decided while we were in attendance, which was 
unbelievable. You could you could feel the the energy and the tension that was around the racetrack that weekend. So hopefully it's going to be the same thing this year. And I think not only do we want that, but I think the TV networks want that. And I think everybody listening at home wants a championship that goes down to the final race of the season. Yeah, 100%. I feel exactly the same way. I've just uh, really been enjoying the way that it's kind of seesawed back and forth over the first uh, seven, eight uh, rounds of the season. And I think uh, ultimately that will be the mark of whether or not this becomes like a, a modern classic season is just how long does this battle between Lewis and Max uh, keep going? Does it go for another couple of months and then one of them takes a decisive lead in the championship that ultimately it becomes uh, too much of a lead for the other one to catch up or does it uh, does it go back to be something similar like we saw in 2016 with Rosberg and Hamilton where like you say it comes down to a very small gap and it gets decided on the final race of the year ultimately I think that would be wonderful that both the drivers and the constructors at championship gets uh, decided at that uh, date and that time because then we would all be on the hook here for months and months and months to come and that would be uh, absolutely wonderful. Hey, but Mark, but before we go further into the show, there's one thing I want to pick up on that you guys were talking about in uh, the Spaces chat just now. Was it, it spaces- teasing you about talking about Valtteri Bottas too much? Yeah, no, don't, don't worry, bro. I got you covered. I got you. Your, 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 <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've got your Valtteri Bottas uh, story here. Story but the one thing, you, somebody, I can't remember who it was, uh, but somebody was talking about uh, Rich Energy. And I don't know what it is. I was thinking about Rich Energy just the, the other day. And the, the one thing that uh, I, first of all, was thinking about was, was, was first of all, that uh, that almost iconic color scheme that they had, that black and the gold, very reminiscent of the, the John Player special that, uh, what was it, Lotus would have had in late uh, 70s, early 80s, obviously. Tobacco, obviously not the greatest tie-in when it comes to, to advertising, but the one thing I was wondering is, I can go down to the 7-Eleven here, I can go down to the gas station, I can get a can of Red Bull, I can get a, a, a can of Monster Energy drink or Rockstar or anything. Where the hell do you buy rich energy drinks? It, does it actually exist, like like in physical form? Can you go somewhere? Can I order a case of it online? Can I buy it at Costco? Can I get it at the Sev? I, I don't know. But that that was always the joke, right? Which is, yeah. <laughs> how did Haas not do their due diligence when they partnered up with Rich Energy? If you're if you're if you're considering signing up with this team to a multi million dollar collaborative marketing arrangement, you've never seen their product in a store. They they have no plans to get it to a store. I've still never seen it in a store. I've read a few times that it's been magically available in kind of a back alley stall at the Indianapolis 500. I've seen a few <laughs> people on Twitter indicate they were able to order some off of Amazon. But okay. I, my sense is that even mainline mainline retailers like 7-Eleven and in the UK Spar and some of those places, just they don't have the appetite to do business with this company. But yeah, it's such a phantom product. And it's, yeah. as, as you mentioned, somebody on the... Somebody on the chat, I can't remember if it was Charlie or Armando, indicated that Rich Energy now has a deal with a team in the British Superbike Championship. So we're looking at a photo of the bike. So they're still treading water, so to speak, but hmm. they still don't have a product. And if you look at their financial statements, they have no income. They don't have they have no assets. That they're they're basically a phantom organization. You know who would be totally down to invest in rich energy is that dude that dropped to 18 large on the invisible statue. Did you hear that story oh, about a week man. or so ago? 
there's this artist, I can't remember where he was. He basically created an invisible sculpture and somebody paid 18 grand. I don't know if it was dollars or euros or pounds, whatever. It doesn't matter what currency you're talking about. 18 grand is a lot. And basically the invisible sculpture stands on top of the, just a, a plinth or a, uh, what do you want to call it? A, a little stand about sure. three or four uh, feet sure. uh, tall. So, you know, that, that guy probably would invest in rich energy. So, you know, if, if anyone out there has been able to buy it, hit us up, let us know. I, I'm very curious to see whether or not this stuff uh, actually exists. Totally agree. Totally agree. Fascinating. So, you know, I'm, but I want to switch now and go into the, the actual news of the week. But before we get to, uh, get to that, I don't want to actually, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Let's just put it that way. I, I want, I'm going to put you, and I'm going to tease you a little while longer. I'm going to save the Valtteri Bottas story probably until after the break, because it all kind of ties into a larger picture of uh, several drivers I want to talk about. But uh, first of all, the first couple of things I want to talk about, and I know that uh, that a couple of people were actually uh, talking to us, or we got some tweets about it, uh, and I want to get to that. And this is this new directive that's come down to slow down pit stops, which I'm totally not cool with. But first of all, uh, I guess we can say that you've been put on blast by the FIA or by the people at uh, Yas Marina because they are going. Because <laughs> just uh, barely days ago, we talked about how hardly we ever see changes to tracks made. Do, is it announced that they're going to put in some banked corners at Yas Marina, which I think is a wonderful development? We've we did bring it up though in the show on Sunday night or last week that we do see uh, occasionally that these changes do get uh, made to the tracks. Uh, Albert Park and Melbourne being one. Uh, Barcelona, was it turn nine or 10, was restored to its original format. But I think this is really cool that they're actually going to do something there to try and rehaul the track and uh, and, and make it, I guess, a little bit more racy. So this is, uh, this is really cool. I, I hope that it has the intended... What, consequence the intended uh what, what do you want to call it <laughs> i'm not even sure but i hope that it lives up to what the design is because this is something that i was really looking forward to see at uh, at sanford uh, that we're going to see a little bit uh, later on this summer into the early fall where they put in some bank corners as well and i think it'd be fantastic to watch these cars pulling the g's and going through these bank corners so i'm really looking forward to see how this turns out yes marina yeah, boy, did I feel like a moron when I saw this story. Probably, <laughs> probably Monday morning or Tuesday morning. So we'd recorded Sunday night, Sunday night, yeah. right? We recorded Sunday night, and Eric, one of the listeners, had, had, had asked this great question about the fact that track organizers or track owners don't often seem to be super reactive to making changes to the configuration to make racing more compelling. And I'd gone on this 18 minute and 32 second spiel about it doesn't happen for logistical reasons and economic reasons and technical reasons. The next day, Abu Dhabi's like, hey, we're going to change the track. We're going to invest a couple million dollars and, and kind of clean up a couple of the corners to make racing more more uh, exciting. And one of the things that's really cool about this too is Fernando Alonso came out today and talked about the fact that he anticipates that this is going to certainly promote a more racy atmosphere and potentially more overtaking in corners that overtaking was never possible before. But specifically, if you look at the quotes in the story that, that you and I are looking at right now, works anticipated to begin this summer. Uh, the overhauls are fairly significant. One at the hairpin section, the chicane will, before it will be removed with the width of the track in this area will also be opened up to allow multiple racing lines and potentially more passing opportunities because before it was a very tight corner with a single racing line, there was no chance of overtaking. And then 
I'll t- at the second one, at the end of the second back straight, the tight and twisty complex of bends are being removed completely and replay- replaced with a high speed and wide banked, which is what you are just referring to a couple of seconds ago. Love it. Wide banked corner. And this is interesting because if, if Yas Marina is anything, it's super, super flat. So building mm-hmm. in a banked corner is expensive and it'll add a really exciting new dynamic or twist to this circuit. And this is a track that's been on the calendar since I guess 2009. So this will be year 12, year 13 at Yas Marina. I think it's due and I'm super excited that they're taking this on because ultimately they don't need to. This race isn't going anywhere. It's a staple on the calendar. They spend a ton of money, but it's also very, very cool that they're they kind of understand where the headwinds are in the sport and that fans and viewers and drivers and teams are looking for more excitement and more opportunity for racing moments. And this is just fantastic. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, me too. And I wonder where the incentive is for these different venues to actually do this. I mean, Zandford, I think, was that was the intention all along was to revamp the circuit and modernize it and and make it a little bit, I guess, more compatible or maybe maybe compatible isn't uh, the, the, the best word. No, to that, use, that but is the right word. I would agree that. You think so? Word. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, compatible with the modern Formula One cars, but we've seen, like I said, the, the changes that they're making to Albert Park, the changes that we've already seen at Barcelona, and now the changes that that are being uh, implemented for Yas Marina. So I wonder where this this undercurrent, where this uh, this incentive, the the idea that uh, the, these different venues should make uh, incorporate these changes. I, I'd love to know if there's been some sort of incentive somewhere in the in, in the back in the background of Formula One. Maybe not, but it, it's great to totally. see because if it makes the, the on-track product more exciting, I'm totally 100% for it. Hey, Mark, before we go on to the next one, so we got Wallace in the live chat. He wants to know, he says, I saw the changes. Could you guys break down why it's a, a little more racy, a.k.a. why do lots of corners make it less racy? You want to take that one? I'll let you take it, sir. Well, okay. Well, first of all, uh, <laughs> thanks, man. Well, I mean, <laughs> the one thing is that I think that's kind of cool. Like you said, I mean, they're going to be, uh, re- re- sorry, removing the chicane there, adding in the different corners. So, I mean, you're not going to have, I mean, the, the whole... The whole idea with the with the chicanes is actually to slow the cars down. It's partially a safety thing. So, I guess uh, that it's it's by taking it out, you're going to get more speed going into it. Going into the into the bank corner, you'll have uh, the the combination of the downforce and the grip and the banking holding the cars in place, so they'll be able to carry more speed into the corners. I think the one thing I do like about that uh, track at Yas Marina, and you can disabuse me if I'm wrong, is that very long back straight when they come down into that hairpin around around where what's it called Ferrari World is. That, uh, that that big venue right at the end where you see like the big roof with the prancing horse on the top and they go down there. It's a very long straight. It's it's not necessarily one of the longest in Formula One, but it is significant or maybe it is. I, I, I don't actually know how long that one is. So to be able to carry more speed going into there, I think will be really, really cool. And especially adding that banked corner. And I've always liked this one, uh, simulating it in the, the F1 racing game, because I really like that sort of sweeping set of corners when you come out of start finish, you take that very sharp uh, 90 degree left hand corner through those sweeping corners through the first uh, third of the track. But I always hated that left and right chicane into the hairpin, you know, playing video games, obviously very accurate when compared to a real Formula One car asterisk. But uh, <laughs> certainly, I think uh, 
you know, from just a gaming point of view, it really disrupts like the flow of the circuit. So I can imagine being a real driver in a real Formula One car, being able to get rid of that chicane as one part of the track, going into that banking, then going into that straightaway. I think it's going to be awesome. I really, really do. I totally agree. And I think you've done a, a fantastic job of summarizing. The, the other main consideration, too, is those tight technical corners, as you describe, ultimately require the cars to slow down. But the way the track's constructed was that there was really only a single racing line. So even if a car made a mistake, there wasn't really an opportunity for somebody else to pass them. The way that the track's being reconfigured enables multiple racing lines. So in theory, there is an overtaking opportunity in both of these corners now, especially the banked corner. So you could carry potentially more speed into that corner, attack a different racing line than the person in front of you and potentially pass them. Whereas in the past, because of the configuration of the corners, because they were so tight, because there was only a single racing line and because they were so technical, it ultimately slowed the cars down. It wasn't exciting and there was no passing opportunity. Now you've simplified, you've smoothed out those corners. There's going to be more speed carried in. There's multiple racing lines there's opportunity to overtake but yeah i'm super pumped about this but especially um especially excited about that uh that bank corner and some people are suggesting it might be an iconic corner which is a uh, high praise yeah absolutely i i, I want to pick up on this but first of all i want to take a quick break because i want to uh i, I want to actually go back and talk about a real old school track that has that uh, banking and it is not it's not going to be Monza. So I'm just going to leave that sort of dangling there as we go into the break. So guys, don't go away. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk about, I'm not going to give it away. We'll talk about the mystery track, all the latest Formula One news and much, much more on the other side. So don't go away. We're going to be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's Mark and Mark, Daly and Hamilton, and we're talking Formula One. So any idea which track Zandor. that I hinted? Well, cl well, closer. It's closer to where I'm thinking than, than Bonds is. Ooh, oh, you're, you're cold. You're ice cold, my friend. So you, you were closer when you said Zandvoort, but... Hmm. Okay, I, I'm out of I'm out of guesses. Tell me, tell me. Oh, okay. Well, I'll get I'll cut you some slack here because this track actually closed before World War II. So this is Brooklyn's. Have you ever heard of Brooklyn's? Yes. yes. Yeah. So Brooklyn's is a, a very old track. Opened, I believe, it was just before 1910, give or take a couple of years. It closed uh, just before the the start of the Second World War. It's a, in a 
I like to say a suburb, but it's at a town called Waveridge, just outside of London, south of London. I went there on a family holiday. I would think I was probably 16, 17, thereabouts. Most of the track is gone uh, now, and it was kind of a kidney-shaped track. And now, nowadays, I believe it's a business park. But what I think is really cool is that part of the track has actually been preserved, and it is it was like a completely banked circuit. So, I mean, this is really, really old school. I mean, this is when cars were basically like a, a brand new thing. But the one thing that really st- what, what, what really stood out in my mind and really impressed me was, number one, you can picture these people flying around at whatever speeds they were doing back in 1907 or 1910 up until, you know, the 1930s in a leather helmet and no seatbelts and all these crazy things, right? But it was just the angle, the, the, the steepness of that, that banking and i remember at the time they did have a mclaren there this is like a senna prost uh, era mclaren honda i can't remember exactly which car it was and it just really impressed upon me at the time that i thought it would be spectacular if you could put a formula one car on a track like that maybe not banking all the way around or in all the corners but in some banked corners and lo and behold like a million years later i'm finally getting my wish so kind of a long roundabout story but uh, certainly Go online, go Google up uh, Brooklyn's uh, racetrack, go check it out. It's a really cool place. If you ever get a chance to go there in person, they got an awesome museum. And I believe there was uh, also like an RAF base there during the war as well, or or very, very close by. But uh, yeah, very, very cool place uh, to be. Now, um, do we want to talk about the pit stop thing or do we want to talk about the British Grand Prix? You, you, my friend, get uh, get to choose here. I think we can talk about the British Grand Prix. Obviously, the technical directive is a very, very hot topic on Reddit yeah. and on Twitter and on YouTube right now. We talked about it at length in the Spaces session. So maybe we talk a little bit about the British Grand Prix, and then we can segue into something that's probably a little bit more controversial sure. than the British Grand Prix hosting a large crowd. Yeah, I, I don't think we really need to spend too much time on this one, but I did think it was kind of interesting because uh, Lewis was talking that even though that they've been given the the green light to basically fill the premises with 140,000 people on race day, he still fe- feels it's a what, what he calls a premature, and he's well. I mean, I, I think that's fair that uh, and a good thing to encourage people to be precautious and and, and just uh, do the right thing when it comes to to you know being healthy and. Res- responsible because i mean the pandemic is starting to die down bad choice of words there it's starting to dissipate uh, somewhat but uh, i I think that's a a fair call but it is interesting too because did we talk about it last week i think what you were saying was that the the race is due to go on what was it july 19th and i think that the what the current uh, covid regulations or restrictions in the uk are set to expire the day after and i I believe uh, boris johnson has said uh, all the time that this is a one-way track forward and yeah, I, I guess that you you could take twenty people into a room, ask them the same question. You would probably get a slightly different answer from from every different person. But I don't know if uh, you know we're not there. I, I just uh, I have a kind of a, a mixed reaction to it. But I do agree with uh, Lewis in a sense that you know if you're going to go, just just be responsible about it, uh, even though it. You know, the risk being outside in the pandemic seems to be virtually zero. But uh, I'm glad that they're being able to put that many people in there. I don't necessarily think it's the wrong call. I just hope that it doesn't turn out <laughs> to be the wrong call, right? If you know what I mean. Yeah. 
it's one of those things that's funny, right? Like you read this story and Hamilton's being very cautious and very conservative, but there was another story that was released as well. And obviously it was quotes from a different interview with Hamilton and he was very positive and he was excited to be back in front of those fans and that the British Grand Prix presents one of the best environments and atmospheres on the calendar. Obviously yeah. he's been enormously successful there. The The hometown atmosphere for him is probably unlike anything he experiences anywhere on the calendar. And he gets really strong support at every single race. I've shared the story before as well, but in 2018, I was shooting qualifying at the British Grand Prix trackside and Hamilton put in the fastest time he took pole, but you could feel in the ground the, the reaction to people when his time was posted on the board and it was mm -hmm. clear that he'd taken pole, it was palpable. It was this magical magical experience that I wouldn't trade for the world to be there and to be a part of that. And, and, you know, I wasn't there to watch. I was there taking photographs on the side of the track, but I still felt it and I still experienced it. And obviously for him, I think this is a magical place. I agree with you. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. My sense is that if we're at a position where 60, 70, 80% of the population is vaccinated, at what point do we say, look, you know what? You've done everything you've been asked. You've been vaccinated. You've been vaccinated twice. You're being safe. As a government, we feel we feel that we can empower you to make the decision to go to a racetrack outdoors. And granted, there's going to be 140,000 people there, <clears throat> but this is also very different than an enclosed bowl or a domed stadium or an arena. It's 140,000 exactly. people spread around a six-kilometer racetrack. It's very, very different. And to your point, if people could be responsible, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of extra distance, or maybe I'm going to wear a mask when I'm in uh, in the stores or if I'm in the Washington, like if people are just responsible, I think it should be, I think it should be okay. Yeah. You make a great point. I mean, it's outdoors. Everybody spread out the entire perimeter of the track and it's not like it's crammed everybody into a small arena or something like that or into a gymnasium. So hopefully uh, it all works out as planned, but uh, just going back to the, uh, just to, to what we were just talking just now about the bank corners, Charlie Tinkler in the, the live chat says, Pirelli better get it together for this banking. <laughs> so there you go. A, a oh, new, uh, <laughs> he stole my line. I had that written down right here. I wanted to revisit that. <laughs> there you go, Charlie. Oh, Charlie. Beat you to it. Okay, uh, so now we have this sort of hot bus, uh, button topic that we were talking about or just hinting at just now, but I am not a big fan of this. Uh, and basically what the FIA is doing, they want to slow down Formula One pit stops starting at the Hungarian Grand Prix in a couple of uh, weeks from now. So they do have a reference in the technical re uh, regulations that reference pit stops and that basically it refers to sensors that must act passively. And this kind of goes down the rabbit hole a little bit. Uh, this is Article 12.8.4 that says, quote, devices which are used to fit or remove the wheel fasteners be, uh, may only be powered by compressed air or nitrogen. Any sensor systems may act passively. So... Basically, what they're doing is they're 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 using the old excuse or the, the the reason of safety concerns, and they're basically trying to cover off on complaints that some of the teams uh, that they're running are going faster that can be achieved by following the current rules within the way that uh, they're they're written. So I, I guess. If you look at it in that light, when it comes to safety, sure, safety always has to be the number one concern. But I'm not a big fan if, you know, this is just a way of maybe pacifying some of the, the voices that have uh, voiced these complaints, I guess you could say, rather than 
Yeah, I, I don't really know how to word it. I Let's just put it this way. I love watching the pit stops, especially when it comes down to the big teams and seeing who can nail it. And I get really, really excited when you can see like these where they get to about two seconds or these world record 1.9 seconds. I think it's a spectacle. I think it's awesome. And I'm just not in favor of anything that's going to slow it down unless it's an obvious safety concern. What are your thoughts? I completely agree. And I'm going to read out a tweet that I tweeted out a little bit earlier today, but I tweeted, Dear FIA, unnecessary mid-season rule changes that are perceived to disadvantage a single team under the guise of safety are a surefire way to turn off your new fans. And I feel very strongly about this. When we were in the Spaces chat earlier tonight, Armando had made a great point that, look, if this is a legitimate safety concern, I think people would get it, right? Ultimately, this is an incredibly dangerous sport. And the last thing that any of us, that any of us wants to see is a preventable injury or death, either to a driver, a marshal, or a spectator. The reality, though, is what they're arguing that they're attempting to prevent here is the unsafe release of a car that doesn't have a wheel attached correctly. That's ultimately Mm -hmm. what they're saying here is that, look, this is a risk. We want to address the risk. But is the risk a problem? And if you look at what's happened to this year, like, okay, you know what? Mick was Mick was released prematurely. Ultimately, he didn't get out of the pit lane. He ultimately retired. Not a good look, but they caught that. Were there any other major issues this year? Not really. Last year, not really. 2018, sure, there was 10 unsafe releases. Two of them, by the way, two of them were Haas cars at that Australian Grand Prix. I think we probably (laughs) all recall that where they released two cars consecutively without the wheels being bolted on properly, both because of cross-threading issues. Still bizarre. Still bizarre. But ultimately, I don't believe this is an issue. And again, I'm all for the FIA launching a technical directive if it's to address a pressing safety concern, but this doesn't seem to be a safety concern. And the reality is this is something that the teams do and rehearse and practice. It's almost Mm -hmm. a foolproof process. Again, that Valtteri Bottas example was a complete freak, freak, freak circumstance, but that also wasn't a safety issue because they didn't get the wheel off the car. But ultimately these wheels have three, maybe four threads. It's very easy to get them on. It's very difficult to get them on incorrectly. And then ultimately the telemetry and the data that the car is collecting will tell, will tell the pit's immediately if something's wrong. And if the telemetry doesn't pick it up, the drivers will know. The likelihood that a car could ever get on track and get up to speed and lose a wheel is almost non-existent. And even if they lost the wheel, they're tethered to the suspension. So it's not like that yeah. wheel's going to hit somebody in the crowd. Like Again, there could be an injury. There could be a crash. I think this is terrible. I think the timing is terrible. If you want to do this, do it in the offseason. And the other thing that I kind of came to mind that mind as I was reading this article and I was getting angry and angry as I was reading through the article line by line by line is please let this be a 2022 initiative. And then I saw that word hungry and mm-hmm. I almost saw red. I was so frustrated and I was thinking maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the exception here. So I went to Twitter, overwhelming negativity. I went to Reddit, overwhelming negativity. We went into the spaces chat, overwhelming negativity and the perception. And that's the danger here is the perception seems to be that this is a change that's being incorporated to handicap one specific team. And the other piece too, and you nailed it, is 
The pit stop is one of the most exciting parts of the race because you're letting these mechanics do what they do best. They practice, they work out, they rehearse this time and time and time again, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And when we saw that 1.82 second Red Bull pit stop a couple of years ago, that was an unbelievable feat. We'll never <laughs> see it again, but no longer are the pit stops the best of the best. They're going to be artificial. There's going to be, there's going to be a basement and the teams can't go below that basement because they'll be in violation of the technical directive i'm i'm not feeling this at all and then sorry i'm no. gonna let you go because i'm getting worked up yeah i know i i think it's against the sort of the ethos of uh, formula one uh, like i say totally. i totally agree with like the the safety aspect of it but what are the biggest safety risks when it comes to safety in the pit lane the unsafe releases like you you mentioned and you can never really put that on the driver because the driver's looking straight ahead they have yep. a very narrow field of view they just look as soon as they're given the signal to go they just hammer it and go they're out in the pit lane they're going and ultimately they just have to take what they're being instructed to do on good faith i mean that call comes from somewhere else to let that driver out of the pit box back into the pit lane so that is the number one thing i mean we, we did see it a couple of years ago when the the the, the mechanics just get a little bit uh, out of sync or the car comes off of the jacks or something because you remember it was uh, when Kimi Räikkönen was at uh, Ferrari and his uh, one of the mechanics got knocked yeah. over he broke his leg and stuff like that unfortunately those things uh, happen and it's just unfortunately part of the sport when you get that many people working around a car in such a small space and even when they come into the pit lane still doing 60 80 kilometers an hour you know, that's still 35 or 50 uh, miles an hour. I mean, that's still a vehicle that's moving very, very quickly. And unfortunately, those things are going to happen from, from time to time. Or maybe a, a mechanic's going to trip over an air hose or something like that. Because we always see them when they're going out of the pit box, the mechanics in the next uh, pit box ahead of them, they're holding the hoses back just so they give them a little bit uh, more room. Then also the one big safety issue, which became a thing a couple of times in years gone by, which is the the refueling. We'll all remember what happened to was it to, to was yeah. it to Yas Verstappen or was it to uh, Johnny Herbert uh, with uh, with Benetton like 25 years ago and that was uh, because I think Benetton had actually taken some sort of uh, fuel limiter out of the refueling rig so the thing was actually pumping more fuel through the system into the car that could handle they take it off the car and there's a little bit still in the nozzle it splashes onto the exhaust manifold and you get this ultra high octane basically jet fuel touching an extremely hot exhaust manifold and yeah well what do you think is going to happen i mean even if it's just like a, a half a cup of that uh <laughs> of that uh, that fuel i mean it's just going to go up so i mean that obviously is not an issue nowadays and it, it is interesting though how we've seen so many things sort of get punched up on the fly this uh this season the track limits the tire pressures now right. this this pit lane thing and I, I understand why they're doing it, but it looks a little bush league at times when they're when they're changing up mid season. I'm I can understand obviously the tire thing that if teams are running the tires below pressure, that that that, that could be very dangerous. Like we saw the big accidents for for Max and Lance in in, in Azerbaijan. But yeah, uh, I would say if you have to address it, do it, but try and keep it to the absolute minimum amount of rule changes in season that's otherwise like you say it gets it looks hokey two final points on this one i've tried to put together a perspective on what unsafe releases have looked like over the last six mm. seasons 
to my the best of my knowledge, because this data is not recorded anywhere, but to the best of my knowledge, it looks like Haas has the most unsafe releases <laughs> in the last six years. They That's are not a also surprise. over the last six years, they are also the slowest pit stop team in Formula One. So if you want to take Haas as kind of this sample of what slow pit stops look like, it doesn't necessarily translate into safer releases that the team with the slowest pit stops in the last six seasons is also the team with the most unsafe releases. And then finally, I think we all know what's going to happen, right? A couple of weeks from now, a month from now, we're going to go into the Hungarian Grand Prix. One of these teams is going to compromise a race. A driver is going to lose a place. There's going to be a penalty. Something's going to happen. And the competitive balance of a race is going to be disrupted because ultimately a team's going to be too fast or there's going to be a signal and they're going to have to repeat a motion. And then there's going to be confusion. Like I think my single biggest fear here is that a race could be decided because of a pit stop that was too fast as opposed mm-hmm. to a pit stop that was too slow. And maybe, maybe that single race translates into a championship. And then all of this just becomes a big talking point and a big distraction. So we're taking away from what we should be talking about, which is the on-track action. And we're ultimately yeah. going to be talking about, hey, shame on that mechanic, because he was able to pull the tire off in 0.15 of a second instead of 0.20, which is the mandated fastest time. That to me is the biggest fear is that five weeks from now, six weeks from now, a race is going to be disrupted. Maybe multiple races are going to be disrupted because this is so unnatural. It's very, very unnatural. And I just, I don't know how the mechanics and the teams are going to adjust to this in a rapid manner. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, leave it there. I know you're dying to talk about uh, <laughs> Valtteri Bottas. We'll do so in just a moment after we take a break here on the podcast. It's always up to speed with Formula One. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, I am being a little bit uh, cheeky because I'm not uh, trying to be mean towards uh, Valtteri Bottas, but I do want to talk about uh, him uh, for a couple of minutes, but I'm not going to start with him right away. The first story I did want to talk about is uh, Lewis has said that he is actually talking with the Mercedes about a new contract. And he said, uh, he hasn't said too much, but all he's revealed that the talks have been positive so far. Now, it's we we got to go there right and uh, basically Juan Pablo Montoya ex formula 1 driver he said that he believes that Mercedes need to make a quick decision about Bottas to ease uh, pressure in the team and this goes back to what we talked about and specifically what you mentioned way back months ago before the season even started But you were talking more about uh, Lewis Hamilton's contract that by virtue of just giving him a single year deal, a one year deal, it just automatically set the stage for this to be a talking point all year long. Now, this whole sort of secondary topic about Valtteri Bottas and some of the drama and all the things that have sort of gone on with him uh, recently. I mean, just this week, uh, Total Wolf was uh, talking about how he really liked what he called the feistiness of uh, of uh, Bottas in, in France last week, about that sort of explosion that he had on the race radio, about like uh, how he was all upset that they did uh, switch, uh, switch to the... Uh, the two-stop uh, strategy, and then uh, Bottas himself said that he thinks that it's false, that his outburst on the radio has negatively affected his 
relationship with the team. And in the background, we've had George Russell, who impressed with the team ever since last year when he filled in for Lewis at Sakir. And those conversations are going to be there. And Bottas, I think, is a normal, natural conversation to have about his contract at this time of year. Because this is typically the time of year where they have announced it in the past that they've re-upped him, given him another one-year deal, and then it's all said and done. He goes off and helps him win a championship, and he wins a race or two here and there during the rest of the season. But, of course, then you had Lewis. He gets the one-year deal, and now you get to get everybody talking about Bottas. You got everybody talking about Hamilton. Who's he? What's he going to do? Is he coming back? Is he going? What's happening with George Russell? And I would actually say that by just due to the fact that Mercedes hasn't committed to either of these guys one way or another beyond a single year, I think that this has become, I wouldn't say worst case scenario, but I think this has become a completely avoidable distraction right in the bitter fight in the the middle of a championship fight that they're having with Red Bull. They've been struggling a little bit. They've made some uncharacteristic mistakes both on the track and on the pit wall at uh, different times throughout the season so far. And it just does not seem very Mercedes-like. I I think at this point in time, they should be focusing on winning races. They should be focusing on the championship, which they are, but then they've got all these things going on in the background because is Lewis happy? Is he coming back? Is is, uh, Bottas on the way out? Is he not happy? Is there toxicity in the garage within the team? Is there conflict? All these different things, which may not be completely accurate or true to any degree or another and perhaps it's just people like us that are talking about it but i think that just by virtue of not doing anything so far it has become a distraction to them so my question to you because i think everything you're saying makes total sense and remember we went through this last year we went through this almost to be fair it wasn't even the back half of the calendar we went through this with red bull and alexander albon all year last year and (laughs) what a distraction that was My question for you is, if you're Mercedes and you're now in this situation, and whether it was avoidable or not, it's now June 25th, we're more than a quarter of the way through the calendar, things obviously haven't gone your way, there have been a lot of self-inflicted instances of pain, do you... Do you have a conversation with Bottas and you clearly state that you're going in a different direction? Do you publicly announce that? Do you wait till the summer break and you announce the driver swap? Do you wait till the summer break and announce that you're going to change drivers in at the end of the season? To me, I can't see an easy way out of this because I think Mercedes wants the flexibility of exploring their options in the offseason, even though there's probably not going to be a lot of options as more and more young drivers like Ocon and Lando Norris get tied up to multi-year contracts with their current teams. But mm-hmm. what, yep. what is the what is the escape from this? And then maybe ultimately, this is only an issue for us. And maybe within that team and that organization, they look at the, the media and the news reports and Twitter, and they just kind of scoff and laugh and like, let them let them talk about this but if it is an issue if you're total how do you how do you address this on the fly mid-season well first of all and i know we're going back over ground that we've already talked about i think it's extremely bizarre and i would even venture a tad disrespectful if only have committed to lewis for one year on the back of coming off a seventh world championship you know winning and setting all these records. And I I can understand why he might have been a little peeved about that. I don't think that he would come out and say anything publicly, but you could understand why he'd be a little bit uh, 
a little bit ticked off about that. Now, if I were were them and you you want to get that deal done with Lewis, you got to get it done sooner rather than later. And be it again for next year or for two years, whatever it is, whatever he feels uh, comfortable in committing. But I think on the flip side, I think that you have to be upfront uh, with, with Valtteri and just uh, straight up say to him right now, okay, yeah, we're going to bring you back uh, for for next year, but we, you know what? We want to get this deal done with Lewis. We want, we've got a championship to focus on. We've got races to win. You know what? You're going to come back. We, we if you want to come back for 22, we'll have you back for 22. We'll get the deal done later in the year when we've got more time to focus on it. You know, be, be upfront with them. Or on the flip side to, to that, the other side of the side of the side of the coin, I don't know how many sides this coin has, but if you're not going to bring, bring Bottas back, do the right thing now and say, you know what, we're going to go in a different direction. It doesn't matter who that uh, direction is going to be. Obviously, it would probably be George Russell, but say to it, tell him now so that he has ample time to sort out something in Formula One, because I'm sure there would be any number of teams that would love to bring a guy like Valtteri Bottas into that team should he want to do that and not wait till the bitter end like Haas did with the Rogue and Kevin Magnus last year, you know, and I, I think that Mercedes is a far classier organization than that i just think that this wasn't handled optimally that just from my point of view i think you're absolutely right and you make a great point on that that lewis hamilton situation which is he was out of contract coming off his seventh driver's championship the seventh consecutive constructors championship for mercedes and i really felt like they played hardball with the guy and I totally get that the economic circumstances and the global social economic environment was a little bit topsy-turvy because of the COVID situation, but this guy Mm -hmm. did everything you could possibly have asked him to do for eight consecutive years. He wins six driver's titles. He helps you win seven constructor's titles. He's an ambassador on and off the track. He's the only at least for most of the better part of the last decade and a half, the only talent that truly transcends the sport. And I just felt like they played hardball in a way with him that was totally unnecessary. This isn't this isn't McLaren that is cash-strapped. This isn't mm-hmm. Alpine, which is lucky to be fielding a team and that they're lucky that the Renault board is allowing this team to continue to operate. This is Mercedes. This is a team that spends big cash. They, they make cash, despite the fact that this is really just a marketing exercise for that brand. I felt it was hugely disrespectful. And again, I get it. There's a whole huge segment of our listeners that might feel otherwise. and They might feel that we're Lewis homers, but really there's little more that you could have asked of him over the past few years. And to toss him a bone in the form of a one-year $30 million deal was, uh, was truly disrespectful. And I think ultimately it wasn't what he wanted. And you could make the argument that, look, let's give you a deal, Hamilton. Let's get you locked up. We can revisit something longer next season. But if you looked at the way he reacted to the questions about his contract during winter testing and over the winter, he was not happy. He was not happy at all. And I think that that probably resonates with him deep in his core. And I think it's especially pronounced because Toto, who joined the team not long before Lewis, Toto is banking to the value of hundreds of millions of dollars because of his relationship. And again, he obviously owns a big chunk of this team, but I think for Hamilton, at what point do you extend a chunk of ownership as an ambassador, as a permanent member of that Mercedes team? But I think you're right. I think what's probably happening right now is Mercedes wants to make sure that they get the Lewis deal done. If it's one year, if it's two years, if it's three years, they can start planning 
they can start planning what that second seat is going to look like. So my sense is they want to get that wrapped up. But I agree with you in the Bottas situation. He's in a tough position where he can't really go out and openly start exploring other opportunities because he doesn't know what his future is going to be. And obviously, if there's an opportunity Mm -hmm. to stay with Mercedes and drive the most the fastest race car on the planet, you need to do everything you can to win that seat. So he's in a very difficult position. But if Mercedes know, I hope that they finish this Hamilton deal and they have that honest conversation with him. Because at this point, I don't know what the harm is in announcing that, hey, we're going to make a driver swap in the winter. We're probably not going to do it Mm -hmm. mid-season because that's not our style. But what's the harm at this point? Give Bottas that extra four or five months to hunt for a new job because maybe there's an opportunity in Formula One that we don't know yet. I totally agree. Totally agree great yeah yeah sorry to jump in there but i i felt uh, i should say something about that because he's helped you win a whole bunch of championships he's been the the, the consummate teammates he's done everything that he could you could possibly ask of him and more and he's won some races along the way obviously he would have liked to win more he would have liked to win a championship or two or three of his own but he's done everything. He's delivered. He helped settle that really toxic environment that existed there up until 2016. He was the breath of fresh air that they needed. He wasn't confrontational. He was going to come in. He was going to go about do his own business. He was going to be the good teammate to Lewis. He wasn't going to, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, <laughs> um, upset the waters in within the team like uh, Rosberg uh, did with Hamilton. So do the right thing by him. If you're not going to bring him back, fine. This is pro sports. People change teams all the time. But do the right thing. Give him the opportunity. Give him the time to find another uh, another opportunity within the sport. Find another team. Unfortunately, sports isn't always fair. It isn't always the, the, the right thing isn't always done uh, each and every time, but I would hope that uh, they, they do the right thing at the right time. But, you know, it does sound funny when we're saying uh, that uh, that the deal that that Lewis got to the tune of $30 billion in a one-year contract was disrespectful, but it is just because he is such a unique uh, case and a unique person within the sport with what he's accomplished that I don't think that the 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 money is, a, is in any way disrespectful, but the term. Just that lack of a long-term sure, or medium-term sure. commitment to, to me says a lot. And I think it was sort of interesting. You know, you had Anthony uh, Lewis's dad and his one-time manager coming out and saying things. Well, who knows where Lewis's head is at? Who knows if he really wants to stay in the sports uh, long-term? I think that was kind of a, a very carefully worded and released timed announcement by his dad. I think that was Lewis almost speaking through his dad just to kind of really hint at Mercedes or to Mercedes where his head's at and what he might um, might be thinking cool. but it is it is interesting anyways I do want to talk next about uh, Sergio Perez and we'll do so but first of all Mark let's just take a really quick break we're going to reload and get a drink of water here and we'll come back and we'll talk about Checo so guys don't go away we'll be right back in just a moment Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And we were talking about Lewis, we we're talking about Valtteri and the status of their contracts, if you want to call it that. But Sergio Perez said that he hopes that talks over a new Red Bull contract don't take too long and that negotiations will go, what he says, very smoothly after what has been a strong start working together, his words. And I keep coming back 
to the same basic starting point. If you're Red Bull and you don't give Sergio another deal, uh, I don't know if they want to go the Bottas route with him and give him another one-year deal. But the thing is that if you didn't commit to Sergio for at least another year in a partnership that is clearly starting to fire in all cylinders, that seems to really be working well now that he's gotten used to the team, he's gotten used to the car, and has uh, won a race himself uh, just recently. If you didn't give him another contract to come back in 22, who would you who would you bring back in place of him? Nobody. Nobody. That's... I don't even really know how this is a conversation, to be quite yeah, honest. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to add. I, I've been accused recently of being something of a Red Bull homer, which is bizarre because I've cheered aggressively against them for much of the last 15 years. <laughs> but the partnership seems to be working, and there's this collective yeah. atmosphere of trust and mutual respect between Max and Sergio. And I think Max really now does understand and respect and appreciate how valuable it is to have a talented driver next to him, both for the constructor's ambitions for the team. But I think Max is also beginning to understand that you can't win a driver's championship by yourself, that it's a team effort and you can't win a driver's championship unless you've got a teammate that's great at blocking and is helping gobble up as many as many driver's points as possible to take them away from other people that might be challenging you for that title. And I think Max came to Red Bull. He was racing alongside Daniel Ricciardo. He probably took for granted that he was racing next to an elite talent. He was then positioned next to Gasly and Albon. I don't think he appreciated the distraction and the drama that came along with being partnered with those drivers. Not that either of them were doing anything wrong personally. They just weren't as competitive as they needed to be in those cars. And that in itself mm-hmm. becomes a distraction. And I think he was also probably frustrated because he was putting in performances that absolutely, absolutely eclipsed that of his teammates in Gasly and Alexander Albon. So I think he really does appreciate and respect and have a, has a tremendous amount of mutual admiration for Sergio Perez. And I think it's a great partnership, but I think it works. I think the question is going to be not whether he gets a renewed agreement, but rather when does it happen and what does the term look like? I would hope, I would hope in the spirit of putting aside this ongoing distraction that Red Bull commits for at least two years, I think that would be a great gesture. And I think it, it helps take this story out of the press, right? If we're sitting here a year from now talking about, does Sergio get a third year? Are they going to renew him for 2023? That's not a good look, especially if they're continuing to compete. Hopefully they give him a couple of years, maybe two years in an option or two years in a team option. I think he's I think he's earned it, not necessarily just on the track, but what he's been able to do from mm-hmm. a team perspective and from a relationship perspective with Max. You know, I'm going to take this a little bit uh, further, and this is just uh, me. You know, maybe I should go and get the tinfoil hat and throw this one on there uh, on top of my head instead, because I was thinking, could you imagine a scenario? And this this will never happen, of course, but maybe it will because it's Formula One and sometimes the unexpected and the bizarre becomes reality. But I was thinking, wouldn't it be weird if they decided not to bring back Checo Perez to Red Bull next year? And he gets swooped up and picked up by Mercedes. Could you imagine that? Wouldn't that be like the, the most bizarre thing that, that that could happen? And then I was just like, it, it would never happen. But then I kept thinking but back. Can you mind. make it you the know, title it of this it podcast? Could. Because if that's the title of this podcast, our download numbers are going to be through the roof. Yeah, then we'll we'll get complaints from Sergio people. Sergio to oh, Mercedes? Oh, you guys are- question mark? 
Question mark. Yeah, we'll we'll get uh, labeled as uh, clickbaity podcasters, you know. But uh, it's kind of uh, I, I just could help uh, think uh, think about that. Now let's uh, talk a little bit about Red Bull themselves. But they said, and Christian Horner, team principal, said that he feels that he's a bit baffled by some of the comments that uh, Mercedes uh, was uh, making after the French uh, Grand Prix, and they said that they believe that the straight line speed advantage they had at Paul Ricard was down to big what they call. Or Mercedes, it was a big step forward with the Honda engine. So I think that's quite uh, quite interest, uh, interesting that it was uh, you know put this way. Anyways, uh, Christian Horner, he had to say, "quote We're not allowed to make progress." I don't know what he's referencing there. I think that it's the same specification as the first unit. We've run a much smaller rear wing, so that's why the straight line performance was strong. I think Honda are doing a great job, but we don't see a sudden significant increase in power. End quote. So I thought that was kind of interesting uh, too, and I had to kind of wonder if this was maybe total trying to deflect from the issues that uh, Mercedes has uh, been having because what Toto had to say about uh, Red Bull at uh, at the French Grand Prix was the, the following quote, they have made a huge step forward with their power unit, the introduction of the second power unit and the race car is good, no doubt about that, end quote. And I guess part of it has to do is I think that they were running fresh engines in, in France. I, I, I know Max was, I don't know if Sergio was as well. But I, I wondered if maybe there was something got kind of lost in the in the in the quotes. Maybe when Toto was saying that they made a huge step forward in their power unit, I'm just wondering if he was maybe referencing from 2020 to 2021 totally. rather than in season, which of course the, couldn't happen. The right? implication is that if you read that quote at face value, and again I'll repeat this. Total Wolf said yep. of Red Bull's form in France, they have made a huge step forward with their power unit. That implies that they've improved their power unit, not that they have a new power unit to replace the old power unit, even though they're of the same specification, yep. the new one's fresher and is producing more power. Like the implication, and you're right, it could have been lost in translation. It could be a bad quote. It could be a literal translation issue. But the implication, mm -hmm. of course, is that they're continuing to modify the power unit, which of course is yeah. absolutely against the current Formula One regulations, which is engine specifications are completely frozen. You can swap your power units three times a year, or you can swap it more if you're willing to take on those grid penalties. But the current regulations yep. state you cannot be incrementally improving your power unit race over race, week to week, month to month. That, that, that specification is frozen. What you bring into the championship is the engine. And I guess from a Red Bull perspective, you take a little bit of offense to that, especially if you're Marco or Christian, that you're now being accused by your principal rival of doing something that's clearly against the current regulations. <laughs> I thought it was interesting uh, because the way that I took it when I saw, uh, sorry, Sergio's, uh, when I saw Toto's quote was, I felt that he was just referencing the leap forward from one season right. to the next. And we all knew that Honda was going to throw everything into the development of this engine for this year, being their final year in Formula One. And now this is obviously going to be the basis of the new Red Bull power units moving forward next year. So I thought it was kind of interesting. So a related one, uh, Christian Horner uh, feels that the win that they had in France actually disproves the theory or the accusations with the rear bendy flexi wings and the under pressure tires in Azerbaijan and that uh, the, the car and everything that they're doing has just uh, not been, uh, been, been, been proven. So anyways, uh, Christian had to say, quote, a lot of comments have been made in the last few weeks. We've had accusations made 
made, but we've complied with the rules and the way that we've reacted, I think, shows the strength and depth that our performance isn't based on rear wing flexibility. At all times, we've always followed the prescriptions from Pirelli, and obviously the increase in tire pressure this weekend was challenging for all the teams. But then again, the engineering team have done a great job in optimizing the car around it, end quote. So it is interesting because this flexi wing drama saga, whatever you want to call it, seems to have almost dissipated. It was really a thing after the Portuguese Grand Prix. And there were even some threats from Mercedes about uh, protesting the, the the flexi wings ahead of the French Grand Prix when these new, uh, you know, this new technical directive came into a, uh, into play and the whole new testing and everything like that. But it is interesting, though, that that uh, Horner feels that that's really been put to rest, and that they they really feel that they've been proven almost to the contrary that it wasn't a big performance thing. I don't know what, what, what's what's your take on that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting, and I think from Red Bull's perspective, they probably have to be feeling pretty good about themselves right now. Obviously, nothing of significance came from the FIA's investigation into the Bendy Wings over the last couple of race weekends. Obviously, they were in the pit garages in Baku, and they'd stickered the wings, and they were monitoring flex, and they'd instituted some new protocols to get a better understanding of whether wings that teams were employing were violating the current uh, the current formula. But I think they must be feeling pretty good, right? Because on the one hand, they're being accused of incorporating a bendy wing. And obviously, they're not the only one. It was just very, very obvious because they're running at the front of the pack and yep. they made those comments. And then you go into Baku and you have the tire incidents with both Lance Stroll and with Max Verstappen. And of course, the accusations are that, hey, this happened not because of a failure in the tire, but because you guys were running a tire pressure that's prohibited by Pirelli as being unsafe. And maybe that's how you're gaining performance because you're running a lower tire pressure to gain more grip and that allows you a speed advantage. So I think they probably feel pretty good coming out of France with a really clean victory. And my suspicion is we'll probably see more of the same in Austria the next two weekends and they'll continue to feel good about (laughs) themselves. But it's also good for the sport because I don't think any of us ultimately wants to see a championship darkened by these type of allegations. And again, for those of you that are new, what we've talked about this year with bendy wings and tire pressures, if it's not bendy wings and tire pressures, it's sideboards or side pods or brake <laughs> ducts. It's always something, but it's good that this yeah. is being clarified a little bit more. But to be honest, a month from now, we could be talking about Mercedes's bendy front wing. So it's, it's always part of the conversation. It's always part of the narrative. But if I'm Red Bull, I am probably feeling pretty good about myself for the exact reason that you just stated, that they come out of France with a really dominant, really, really clean victory. Yeah, it is funny, too, when you think about all these sort of controversies over the past uh, couple of years, like you say, there's always something It's either low tire pressures or bendy wings or like, say, brake ducts or burning oil or some sort of illegal fuel map or something, which uh, and it's always something. And it goes back to the email we had from a listener a couple of weeks ago asking, are these guys, are they always trying to bend the rules and try and find an advantage? And yes, 100%. And that is part of the reason why we're seeing these technical directives uh, coming out all the time, because 
it, it is amazing that all these little things that they do to the car, like putting the clear tape over the joints and the bodywork to help uh, shave off like a, like a, a tenth or a hundredth of a second, whatever it might be, it all adds up to to, to faster lap times. It, it means less drag. So all these things that they do, they do for a reason. And they're always trying to push the envelope a little bit more and just find that little bit more speed. And ultimately that uh, sets and, faster and just lap clear, time. We faster. want to see that. We want to see the team oh, yeah, pushing yeah. the boundaries and the engineers pushing the boundaries. And yeah. it's the FIA's job to push back, but with very clear, yes. concise, and consistent interpretations of those same rules. And it's when the teams find an advantage and the FIA isn't clear on their response or they're inconsistent, that's where it becomes mm-hmm. that's where it becomes controversial. Yeah, exactly. And then also if there is uh, uh, there is an incident where the rules are broken, that they have to be like say consistent and then they have to be transparent with what Unlike the Unlike Ferrari what, what the, in 2019. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. where I was going. They have to be clear, transparent, and consistent with punishment. And that that one still gets under my skin and uh really kind of irritates me uh, quite a bit. Anyways, another thing that irritates is uh, taking a break when you're in the middle of a topic where we're going to do that because when we come back, I want to talk about an organization that I'm finding is quite, I'm feeling quite organizationally top heavy. You might have a little bit of insight into this. I'm hoping maybe you can uh, add some additional context uh, to do that. uh, And we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be back on the flip side. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, what I was talking about before the break there was the sudden departure of William's former team principal, Simon Roberts, amidst what is a basically a restructuring of the team. I mean, he was team principal for less than a year, which was a bit uh, surprising. But uh, Jost Capito, who is the CEO of uh, Williams, said, and this is what really blew my mind. And this is the, I'll read you the exact uh, quote, and then I'll see if this pops out uh, for you and everybody else as much as it did me. So anyways, Capito had to say, quote, During the first 100 days, I took huge efforts to understand how the teams work. I talked to more than 80 managers in one-to-one meetings and asked them all the same questions. So I got a good overview of what we should change and what we should keep. It became clear that engineering should be all at one hand. Track engineering, design, aero should all be one hand. There should be under the technical director. Then there should be a technical director who has done all the jobs in racing, who has been uh, at the drawing board, who has been a race engineer, who has done R&D and F is exactly that person. You have a technical director in charge of everything that is related to the car. You have a sporting director who's related to everything not with the car and the race team and makes the race team work and function. So the technical people don't have to bother. They can fully focus on the car and the performance. With that, the capabilities that Simon offers didn't fit into the system. Simon did a fantastic job through the change of ownership to keep the team together. I think that's always a very critical situation for the team and the team can't fall apart and get in a dip he did a fantastic job keeping the team together and we're very thankful for that now the one thing that really blew my mind was right off the very top and he said i talked to more than 80 managers in one-to-one meetings so i could ask them the same questions now this is i don't know if it was a a typo in the original article because it said how i took huge efforts to understand how the teams work i just wonder if that should be team 
And then I was just wondering, because I could imagine he went to all the other teams in Formula One and interviewed their employees, how they operate, which I would think would uh, go down like a lead balloon if you may ever approach one of your rivals to, to say, yeah, I'd like to interview some of your key employees to find out what makes you guys tick. I don't think that's going to happen. But the one thing that's at 80 managers, is, is it possible that there are 80 managers within the Williams Grand Prix organization. I spent quite a bit of time digging into this because I thought this was very, very interesting as well, that to your point, they onboard a team principal or they onboard a new executive last summer. He's promoted to team principal in the winter and midway through the season, he's he's effectively evicted from this role. But a couple of moments Mm -hmm. ago, you, you comment on the fact that the article states, you know, I went and talked to the team's plural. I think that's exactly the crux of the issue here is that in many ways, culturally, philosophically, Williams is broken. And they're broken in the sense that all of the different departments within that organization are operating in total silos. They're compartmentalized. And I think one of his findings was that if you went to the factory and you talked to the aerodynamists and you talked to the engineers and you talked to the team in the air tunnel, their perspective was, look, everything that goes wrong on the track is our fault. And everything that goes right on the track is the results of the mechanics and the team that travel every single race weekend. So there seemed to be this really significant breakdown between these two forces. There's the factory and operations and manufacturing and design. And then there's the actual race team. And that there seemed to be this total divide at Williams between the two, and they simply weren't functioning well together. And I think ultimately what they're hoping to do is bring all of those groups under the same leadership, the same banner to create some symmetry and to help erode some of these bad cultural behaviors and habits that have arisen over the past four or five years. Now, ultimately, unless this team can find a way to be successful, I think a lot of this negativity and a lot of these ingrained attitudes and beliefs will persist. But I think that's really what he found was organization organizationally, culturally, philosophically, it's a really unhealthy place right now. And there was a significant Mm -hmm. divide between the race team and effectively everybody else. And that the two simply weren't intermeshed in the way they need to be to be successful like the other teams are. You know, what's really interesting, I think it goes back to season one of Drive to Survive, and they didn't really get a lot of love in all three seasons so far, but there was one episode, I think, in in season number one, where they are at the factory, and I think it was really quite interesting because they have... Uh, I don't know if you want to call it like a pep rally, but anyways, uh, you have Claire Williams addressing basically an auditorium full of hundreds of people, and that's not necessarily an unusual circumstance or an oddity in Formula One. But I thought it was quite interesting when it came to the size of people or the number of the people in that auditorium for this uh, this speech, this gathering that uh, that Claire was addressing the, the the people in attendance for. But I thought it was extraordinary that there were that amount of people there for a team that was struggling at the bottom of the grid with no clear or any other way sort of clear path forward from the basically from the bottom of the abyss. I really remember that as one of the stark moments that stuck out from that 2018. To put this in perspective, and I think this is a really great observation is it's understood and Williams does issue uh, their financial statements, but it's understood that Williams has 650 people on their payroll to put that into perspective, Mm -hmm. given how terribly they perform. Haas has about 225 
the the current incarnation of the Aston Martin team was at 300 a couple of years ago. It's now up to about 450. And I think we've heard Otmar and I think we've heard Lawrence Stroll indicate they want to get to 600. The Mercedes team has yeah. understood that between yeah. their power unit factory, their main factory and Brackley, they're at about 1200. Red Bulls, Red Bulls around 550, 600. So given, given their performance on the track, their headcount is extraordinarily large. And it would tell you that the limited resources that they have are going into people as opposed to necessarily materials and R&D um, and the type of things that technologically can can move you forward. But I recall that exact moment. I just want to add real quick because I was having dinner with a friend the other day, uh, Dead Randy from Twitter. He and I were talking about the Claire Williams, Frank Williams situation. To me, I still mm. find it really frustrating that she was never given the opportunity to be anything but deputy team principal. I just, I felt like she was yeah. never given that opportunity. I think she was sold short. I think she was in a really tough position where regardless of what she maybe said or did within that organization, said to the team, the decisions that she made, she always had somebody mm -hmm. over her shoulder and she probably had a lot of people in the organization uh, doubting her because, you know what, she may say this, but ultimately Frank's the real team principal i just i'm still frustrated to this day that she never had that opportunity yeah it kind of begs the question though if you have that situation if she's the deputy team principal yet she's the one at the factory all the time she's the one that's at the track exactly. every weekend it's just like who ultimately is the the ultimate exactly. boss right and it's just like you say she never really had the team i wouldn't say firmly in her clutches but she wasn't really given full reign to do totally. what she needed to do as as a team totally. principal yeah that that's that's a great and not to get too far off track i just we had that conversation the other night over dinner and we both got worked up and i'm still angry about it because especially in the spirit <laughs> of empowering women and making them uh, bettering integrating them into the culture of motorsport there was an opportunity and she just yeah. never had that that shot yeah, certainly it's frustrating, but I mean, it, it seems most things that that team has done in recent years has been very frustrating. So hopefully they will be able to dig themselves out and become less than, well, I don't want to say that they were a laughing stock, but certainly a yeah. shadow of their 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 former selves. Okay, Mark, uh, we're, we're going to have one more break in about uh, five or six uh, minutes. I just want to start uh, talking about the, the race this uh, weekend, which I think is uh, very interesting. And then uh, later, I just want to close off the show. We've got a couple of uh, interesting uh, emails I just want to talk about. Uh, first of all, uh, we did have a nice uh, long uh, email from Armando in uh, in Toronto. And uh, he, w among other things, is really long, wonderful uh, email. And uh, we'll have to address some uh, more of his uh, points in, uh, in the future <laughs> i think one thing that uh, that he talked about was he said that uh, he said i'm a big uh, mclaren and our red bull fan with uh checo obviously even more and of course i'm biased when it comes to checo hence i really appreciate your honest views on him as a driver just to manage my expectations and then the, the one thing that kind of uh, it, it made me laugh and it kind of uh, was a bit of a, a sobering moment uh, because uh, armando goes on he says your podcast is different from other auto motor racing podcasts which is why i like it when listening to your podcast is like me listening to one of my friends discussing f1 although you are much better articulated so that's maybe a little bit uh, subjective but i appreciate the love and uh, then he says just some feedback from avid multi-topics podcast listener i love your enthusiasm and how vocal you are with some uh, topics but sometimes you go off topic and never <laughs> get back to the main point <laughs> you know uh, that that one stung for about uh, you know a, a millisecond that i realized uh, he's completely yeah. on point <laughs> I, two seconds ago that just happened with williams 
Exactly right. Uh, anyways, uh, we will come back uh, to to uh, his email at some point, uh, a little bit further down the line. But I did just want to talk about uh, in the the minutes before the break here, just about the race itself. We're going to Austria. It's going to be same basically as we saw last year, except uh, this is sort of halfway through the calendar almost compared to the two races off the top of the year, which uh, it was uh, last year. Because same thing as last year, we have the Austrian Grand Prix this week, and then basically the same thing next week, and it's going to be under the the banner of the Styrian Grand Prix, but it is interesting because we're in a bit of a different uh, situation. Last year, it was... And that's why I kind of make it find it a little bit difficult to draw parallels between last year and this year because it was the first two races of the year after an extended layoff at the beginning or the early days of a pandemic when so many things were in flux. And uh, Max Verstappen was coming out uh, this week and he said that past success in Austria don't guarantee a win uh, this year because uh, both races last year were won by Mercedes, won by Lewis, won by, by, by Bottas. In the previous two years, in 18 and 19, Max won the race there. So it's a bit of a tough race to call. I really don't know what to 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 make of this one. Obviously, you have to think that this is Red Bull's uh, home track. Like, uh, like I just mentioned, they won there in 18 and 19. Last year, a bit of a strange uh, situation. But you come off uh, a number of successful weekends for, for Red Bull. The, the momentum in the championship has been in their garage as of late, but that doesn't uh, necessarily guarantee success, just like Max was I saying. Agree. This is a race I get very, very, very excited about, and I have absolutely no reservations about going here back to back. I'm hoping, and you know, when we we're in the spaces chat earlier tonight, we were checking out the weather forecast, and it looks like possibly qualifying could be wet, the race could be wet itself. It would be great to have a wet race and then a dry race the subsequent weekend, but I really do enjoy this track for a couple of reasons. For those of you that don't know, and I think that's probably a, a lot of folks that are newer to the sport. The Austrian Grand Prix, at least this incarnation at the Red Bull Ring, was reintroduced in 2016. There have been a whole multitude of different configurations and variations of this track over the year. Mm -hmm. The current configuration is much, much shorter and much more compact than any of the ones that we've seen before. And if you look at an overhead topographical view, it almost looks like something out of Mario Kart. It looks almost too simple. But what you don't see on the topographical map is that this track is basically carved out of the side of a mountain so you have these monumental epic epic variations in landscape and it's really really exciting for me because the first half of the track is effectively being raced up the side of a mountain and the back half is coming down again so you see different tire strategies you see different yeah. levels of tire degradation you see very variable weather so this week's going to be hot but the weekend could be wet to me, it's one of the most exciting tracks. I love that it's short. I love that it's compact. I love seeing these sub one minute, 10 second track or uh, laps. To me, it's very exciting. And you nailed it as well that this isn't a track that Lewis has dominated or really even Mercedes has dominated in much the same way that they have a lot of other places. If you go back to 2014, Nico won for Mercedes in 14, 15, Hamilton won in 16, Bottas won in 17, Max put in a huge performance in 18 and 19, and of course, Valtteri won here last year, and I don't know if we're going to see that. The other consideration, and this is a really interesting point as well, is the track's actually owned by Red Bull. So you talk about Red Bull as this corporate entity that's really invested in motorsports, whether it's extreme sports, MotoGP, Formula One, they own two Formula One teams, and they own a track. It's pretty, pretty cool. So incidentally, mm -hmm. maybe this is somewhere that Red Bull should perform well. My sense is that 
everything seems to be going well for them. This is a high speed track. I think they should do very, very well. My expectation is you could possibly see two Red Bulls on the podium, at least two Red Bulls in the top four. But if it's wet, again, it's totally unpredictable and anything can happen. Yeah, and that's the cool thing too. While you were talking, I just pulled up the the weather forecast for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's going to be partly cloudy at the Red Bull Ring, and it says it's going to be uh, unsettled from the middle morning to the evening. A chance of thunder showers will increase uh, after twelve p.m. FP two could be a, a wet session, so it's uh, they're forecasting twenty five degrees Celsius, which is about seventy seven Fahrenheit. 40% chance of uh, rain. So FP3 and then qualifying on Saturday, sunny in the morning and unsettled weather in the afternoon. Uh, a 40% chance of rain, 22 degrees Celsius, so about 71, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And then Sunday afternoon is going to be unsettled with uh, what they're saying right now is moderate chance of rain, which they're calling 40%. And then again, 21 degrees Celsius or about 70, 71 degrees Fahrenheit night so it uh, it really could throw an element of unpredictability into it uh, like like we saw last year right i mean we had uh, a very wet uh, weekend and then followed by a sunny one so it certainly would uh, add an element of unpredictability uh, unpredictability into the weekend uh, certainly it would uh, make it well I, I suppose if it was raining it would be kind of refreshing anyways but you know pun not in uh, you know pun intended but uh, it certainly could uh, make it a very one, very interesting the one weekend. moment from Last year that is burned into my memory and it wasn't even something that happened on the track of course last year the season opened in austria we had that three four month delay we didn't know if we were going to have a season of course there's that there's that yeah. artificial moment in drive to survive where zach brown's walking around the mclaren factory gets a phone call he's like oh we're having a season 17 races sounds good and he goes to book an airline ticket but <laughs> obviously the season kicked off in austria so we had to back to back at austria and people weren't sure how the covid protocols yeah. were going to work obviously there weren't fans there but the one moment that's really burned into my memory is there was that that long shot with the helicopter and there was those fans that had hiked up on the face of the mountain above the track yeah and they were watching i thought yep. that was so awesome and then in the Styrian grand prix the following weekend that crowd had enlarged significantly but i thought that was a really really great moment yeah, that's right. Uh, I seem to remember that they've done that. Uh, they've shown that uh, that angle before in oh, previous sure. years. So it must be a real insider's thing that people that want a good view of the track without actually having to pay to go in know that you go up that logging road or access road yeah. or trail or whatever it is and know that you can look down because it is a beautiful, beautiful venue. It's a, you know, Austria is just a, a beautiful country to begin with. But I mean, it is a fantastic setting for, for a Grand Prix. Anyways, uh, final break here coming up, Mark. I just want to, when we come back, just run over a couple of uh, stats for the race and then we'll just delve into the mailbag and we'll slowly start to shut it down and we'll do so in just a moment so hang in there guys we'll be back in just a moment All right. Well, welcome back to the show. We're just starting to wrap it up uh, slowly but surely. So just uh, to give you some uh, some numbers here for the race itself. So the lap distance, total lap, uh, or sorry, race distance, pardon me, 306.45 kilometers, 71 laps. Circuit length is 4.32 kilometers. Lap record was set by Carlos Sainz in the McLaren last season, and that is a 105.619. Uh, Pirelli is bringing their more or less mid-range uh, compounds, the C2 hards, hards, the C3 mediums, and the C4 softs. And, well, you know, the one thing that I always 
do whenever it comes to predicting uh, anything really is that when somebody's on momentum, I, I find it hard to bet against them. The longer that they've been having success, the harder that I find uh, to, to bet against them. That's why I was very reluctant to bet against uh, Lewis Hamilton and uh, Mercedes for a, for a very, very long time. But just thinking going into the Red Bull ring, basically their home track, they're on a roll, Red Bull that is, and the fact that there is a prospect for wet weather this weekend. We all know how good Max is in the wet. I can't help but thinking that circumstances at least theoretically are stacking up nicely for Max and stacking up nicely for Red Bull this weekend. You agree, yeah, disagree? I agree. I'm one of those people that's easily won over by momentum, and I, I need to be shook out of that. I think, obviously, people <laughs> would be excited by a max win. Uh, the other stat that I read earlier today as well is Red Bull's on the verge of helping create something that we haven't seen since 2013. This could be the first time since 2013 that there were four consecutive races in which Mercedes didn't win one like i'm trying i don't know why i'm having so much trouble articulating this but it could be the first time since 2013 that mercedes didn't win any of four consecutive races okay i got it out that makes sense Mm -hmm. so for me obviously (laughs) what i would like to see is i want this again i'm now financially invested in this championship going down to the absolute wire so i would like to see lewis hamilton or anyone but max verstappen win this race because i want to make sure that championship stays as close as it can possibly be yeah, great point. Hey, cool. So we've uh, we've given our predictions and we got a little bit of time left. Uh, I haven't heard anything about MotoGP Corner, which is good because I don't have the the, the jingle matter. lined up. Doesn't but matter. If you got I'll make something... this one really quick. So okay. MotoGP okay, go news. For it. To put this into perspective, we all know because you've been listening to the show since the beginning. Valentino Rossi is very much the goat of that sport, although that could change, especially if Mark Marquez can get his career back on track now that he's overcome some injury issues. So. Valentino Rossi wrapping up his career. This could be his last season. But in the meantime, he has spent the last number of years bringing together investors and putting together his own premier MotoGP team. So he is launching next year the Aramco Racing Team VR 46. He has signed a three-year agreement with Ducati to supply bikes, and he signed a five-year agreement with Dorna, who's effectively the Liberty uh, equivalent over on the MotoGP side of motorsports, mm. to compete. So he, his team is now locked into the MotoGP championship for the next five years. They're going to be running uh, Ducati bikes for the next three years minimum, which means that there's actually going to be eight Ducatis on the grid, which is crazy since there's only two Suzukis. But that's kind of very, very, very <laughs> cool. The other thing that I promised is we want to start talking and we've had a ton, we've had a ton of people reaching out about Formula 2 and Formula 3. Ben sent a really uh, elegant DM via Twitter a couple of days ago talking about how much value it could add to the show if we started talking a little bit more about F2 and F3. I don't think we're in a position to do that tonight, but the one thing that I did want to mention because I think we absolutely owe it to our listeners and to the sport is this is the first weekend of the WC or W Series Championship. So Like we talked about earlier tonight in the Spaces chat, the W Series is back. It's an all-female championship. It is built around spec cars, so all of the drivers race the exact same cars. The same team prepares all of the cars. The drivers share telemetry. They share data. There's a ton of parity, so it's absolutely a championship 
about skill. The big difference between 2019 and 2020 is that, or 2021, is that in a bid to help promote and bring more exposure to the W Series, the W Series will be functioning as a support series for Grand Prix weekend. So in 2019, it was very much kind of on its own, doing its own thing, scraping and clawing for whatever exposure it could get. This year, they will be racing at Grand Prix weekends, on Grand Prix tracks, with all the exposure that comes with it. But their season kicks off this weekend, and I couldn't be more excited to see how how that story plays out. And we promise we'll bring updates as the season goes on. Cool. Yeah, awesome. 100% we will for sure. Okay, uh, mailbag time. So I've got a couple of emails I want to just read out uh, really quickly here. First one's from uh, Chuck. It says, uh, oh, hi, Marks. Just started watching F1 this season. I'm curious about the relationship between Red Bull and AlphaTauri. How much does uh, the Red Bull main team benefit from having a sister team, if at all? And why don't the other top teams have junior slash sister teams? So, uh, well, first of all, the reason that they have the uh, relationship with the AlphaTauri is that it was basically a funnel to get their uh, drivers through their, their, their academy, through their system, get them experience in Formula One. One with the Alpha Tauri slash Toro Rosso, which it was uh, before last year, before making that step into the the main or sorry the main Red Bull team. Now that has basically been their model for a long, long time, and they've struggled with that in the last uh, couple of years with Pierre Gasly, and he made the switch back to uh, Alpha Tauri, as did Danny Kvyat, who lost his seat at Red Bull to Max Verstappen, and then you've got Alex Albon, and that's why Checo Perez is basically the odd man in that whole situation because they don't tend to bring very many guys out of that uh, system into that uh, into that second seat at Red Bull because I mean Ricardo was a Red Bull guy through the system so was Sebastian Vettel I mean a lot of drivers are so there's that uh, that 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 benefit there I mean it is a different uh, team I mean even though they're within the same sort of parent uh, organization if you want to call it that the thing is every team has to design and build their own uh, unique car which they do I mean this is not Benetton and Ligier from the 1990s which I think they almost had like identical cars back then but that's a different discussion for a different day and other top teams do have sort of sister junior teams but they're more the the form of relationships which you see with like ferrari with their relationships that they have with the alfa romeo with uh, with Haas, etc right where so they, they can just kind of parachute their drivers in and and really have a big influence over these uh, teams that are also running ferrari power units that's why you have mick schumacher at Haas. that's why you have a uh, giovanazzi at uh, i was gonna say sauber but uh, at alfa romeo so there's a lot of uh, heavy influence there i mean they're all their own independent teams in their own rights, but just being under that that Ferrari umbrella, if you will, having the Ferrari engines, there are certain benefits, pros and cons, if you want to call it that, uh, with that uh, Ferrari. The only uh, thing I would add, and I think example. you did a fantastic job of summarizing this, is the reason that more teams don't own, outright own a B team or a development team is they're incredibly expensive. And a couple of days ago, yep. maybe a week or two ago, Vincenzo Landino, one of our great supporters, had actually posted a financial statement for Alpha Tauri for the prior season. And if you look at that financial mm-hmm. statement on the surface, it looked like the team earned $2 million. But one of their sources of revenue was an $84 million cash injection, a cash transfer from Red Bull. So the oh. team itself is underwater a huge amount without that cash injection. So 
you can take on a B team, but ultimately it's a huge, considerable expense. And I just want to reiterate as well your other point that in the case of the Alpha Tauri Red Bull relationship, really the benefit to Red Bull is exactly what you said. It's it's a development channel. It's a conduit to develop drivers at the F1 level before you move them into the, the Red Bull seats. Um, ultimately, and we talked a lot about this the last couple of weeks, the technical regulations prohibit teams from running similar or identical chassis. So that team is fundamentally required as per the technical regulations to develop their own car. And of course, there's certain parts that they can share in terms of gearboxes and engines and things like that. But ultimately, they have to develop their own car. Yeah, yeah. Nothing else to add to that. Great, uh, great points that you added to that. Next uh, emails from Donald Kelly in uh, Madrid, Spain. It's the only Irishman in 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 uh, Madrid. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, great to hear from Donald. And the question, or the, actually, it's more of a of a statement. If anything, says I love the podcast, guys. Got into F one because of DTS. A question: Do you think that Perez will pass Hamilton on the track this year? I reckon he has all the chance of uh, doing so. You know, I, I think that's an interesting interesting situation to think about i mean he was a little bit off pace compared to say max and the two mercedes uh, last weekend but if he could uh, find a little bit more speed and maybe match be a little bit closer to max say the way that bottas is to hamilton if those four cars were more uh, more close to each other i think it would be uh, really fascinating to have maybe sort of a four-way battle between both of those uh, both of those uh, two teams and it's it's certainly i think that there is an opportunity there because there there is obviously no clear cut advantage for for either of these teams. It's kind of gone back and forth uh, over the the first several races of the season before it's been more heavily weighted in in, in Red Bull's favor over the past uh, couple of years. But as as enjoyable as it is, uh, or at, 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 as it has been to watch Max and Lewis scrapping it out uh, this uh, season, I think it would be great to, to see uh, Perez uh, you know added into that conversation and Bottas as well. I mean, it's one thing to have two guys fighting for the championship but to get both uh cars on both teams involved Fantastic. i think would be cool totally agree i don't have anything else to add i just think that would make for an incredibly compelling championship okay awesome now we got another one here from uh from michael pascarelli in uh, pittsburgh so steel town checking in and uh, this is a kind of a cool one uh he says uh, just mean to let you know i love your guys podcast i recently became a fan of formula one through watching uh, drive to survive i started watching uh one season two once season two came out but never really knew much about the sport until i started listening to your podcast so thanks for doing what you do that said, I have a question on the Formula One fan experience. When I started watching the docuseries, I became a huge fan of Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc. As it turned out, the two were not teammates driving for Ferrari at the time. My question is, in Formula One, are people not usually supportive of a team, no matter the drivers or drivers, no matter the team? Hope you guys have a good one. Keep it up. Love listening while I grind away at my desk. Best, Michael Pascarelli. So that is an interesting and I think that is interesting about Formula One is people tend to, and I guess it's almost personal, if you're more loyal to a team than to a driver or vice versa. I mean, I think if you ask this question in Italy, the automatic uh, question or the automatic answer to that is it's Ferrari and we will support the Ferrari drivers. And if uh, we love that guy who was driving for Ferrari today and uh, next week he's driving for Mercedes, we hate that guy. <laughs> you know, he, He's not a Ferrari driver anymore. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's basically out of the family. Right. But I think it, it really depends. I mean, I think you have like a big loyal following 
following for Ferrari. You have a big uh, loyal following for, uh, for 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 Mercedes. I think that there's also uh, a big following for some of the other teams, especially like uh, for for McLaren, and that the the love for McLaren I think tends to go back a ways, especially for people in our generation that kind of grew up and watching Formula One when they were kind of in one of their previous heydays in the early 90s and late 80s with like Senna and Prost and whatnot. But it's different because, I mean, if you're, say, a hockey fan, you know, you're always going to cheer for the Canadians. Shout out to them because they won tonight. Or you're a, a Raiders fan for if you're a football fan, whatever it might be. But I guess the, the one way that I kind of thought about it is that, um, you know, Take take basketball, for example. There might be people that uh, cheer for the Lakers because they love the Lakers. And then there might be people that love LeBron because they love LeBron and they'll cheer for the Cavs or they'll cheer for the Lakers or whoever just because LeBron changes or uh, plays for that team. That's the only kind of equivalent that I could sort of kind of Yeah, like, I think you to. absolutely what, what you stole think? my thunder. I think this is a great question and it's a very... It's a very North American question, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful yeah. way at all. I think we we like to no, we like no. to relate new sports to what we know and we understand. And you're right in in a sense. If you look at Major League Baseball, and if you look at the NHL, and if you look at the NFL, I think typically fans, partly because of culture and personal identity and the neighborhood they grew up in and civic pride, I think fans are typically attached to a team regardless of the roster. I think the NBA, you're absolutely right, is a little bit of a different beast in the sense that there's this certain segment of fans that support a team and they'll always be committed to that team. But I think there's this younger base of fans that grew up being not a fan of the Jazz or the Suns or the Cavaliers, but they grew up being a fan of Kyrie mm-hmm. or KD or LeBron and they they shift allegiance sure, based on yeah. where that player is. And that's in part because the NBA, unlike the NHL, which is terrible at this, the NBA has done a phenomenal job of promoting talent and individuals the NHL could learn something there. Mm-hmm. Major League Baseball for sure could learn something from that. And actually, so could the NFL. But the NBA does a really good job of promoting individual talent and empowering individual talent. I think this is a really great question from, from a Formula One perspective. And I think you nailed it. I think there are some teams that demand allegiance regardless of performance or drivers. And Ferrari is one of those. McLaren maybe a little bit. But for the rest of the for the rest of the grid, I think fans typically support drivers. And and I think we did a mm-hmm. poll not more than three or four weeks ago where we asked this specific question. And the question was, do you follow a team? Do you support a team or do you support a driver? And overwhelmingly, I think the split was 80-20. At least our listeners follow the sport to support a driver, not a team. So very different than I think we see with team sports. And for me as well, I've got this emotional connection to Williams, but I don't care if they lose every weekend. And maybe that's just because I've become conditioned to that (laughs) happening. But likewise, I'm a big Lewis fan, but I'm not super emotionally invested in the long-term success of that team. So I think I even probably fall into that bucket where I'm more invested in individual drivers than I am a specific team. Awesome question. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, just before we sign off here, I've got Michelle G checking in on the live chat, uh, just uh, going back to what we were talking about, uh, Checo uh, catching and passing uh, Lewis. And uh, she reckons that if uh, if there were a couple more laps at the French Grand Prix, that uh, Perez yes. would have uh, passed. Uh, true. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, 100%. Cool, man. Well, that that's all I got. You got anything else? No, just one last thing. I promise to, to shout out. So I'm learning every week how... 
how far spread our listeners are. So shout out to Malta because we have a very strong support cool. base there. So fantastic. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the continued support. But that's that's really all I got. You know, I had my second vaccine today. The first time I got mine, I was knocked off my feet for about 18 to 24 hours. I'm starting <laughs> to feel that way now. So I think our timing to uh, log off is perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, uh, thanks everybody for checking in, for downloading and listening to the show. For those of you that uh, joined us in the live chat on uh, the YouTube live stream and then also earlier on Spaces tonight, it's been a busy night for us. I feel that uh, it's it's a good time of night to shut it down ourselves and uh, just uh, get through. we got one last day before the weekend here. It is uh, well, the, the last wee dying moments of Thursday. Ju- sorry, I was going to say July 24th, a month ahead of myself. June 24th and then weekend is literally right here. I I, I can feel it. So anyways, uh, have a great weekend, guys. Enjoy the race. You want to get in touch, best ways, uh, hit Mark up on the Twitter at ScooterieF1Pod. And also, if you want to send us an email, ScooterieF1Pod at gmail.com. That's a wrap. Enjoy the race. Talk to you guys on Sunday night. Bye for now.